And the whole thing kind of fell apart. And uh, the only option was for me to buy my partner out. He had $5,000 on a credit card. And fortunately for us, we were in a position where we could move into it as our primary residence. And so we were renting an apartment. And so the only way to not lose the house was, was to for us pay to pay the mortgage yes, yourself to move into person, it. So. And and it was crazy because we had uh, every single dollar of cash that we had at the time, which wasn't much, was in that house. And then I had borrowed $30,000 from my parents and that was in the house. So it was this huge, I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing. We went through this whole process and then I literally, we call it the flip that flopped. It's like this, it's, it's the largest physical, tangible uh, failure of my life. And I move my wife and my six month old into it. Okay, let's do this. This is Jeff. I'm Andre. Are you ready? I'm ready. Love or work. Is anyone listening? No, don't put that on the air. These two people are really, really funny. This one made me cry. World Series champion. Around the entire world. NBA all-star. We hope you love this interview as much as we did. Love or work. Welcome to the Love or Work podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. What was up with that one? Well, that's my name. That's a new... Okay. We're on this long journey asking the question, is it possible for both of us to be living out our purpose and stay in love and raise a healthy family? If you don't follow us, Tough question. At Instagram, we are at love or work. We're trying to build this community of commenters, of people that are wrestling through this together. And we want to join you. We want you to join us in this journey. So, Andre. What? What are we going to learn today? <laughs> Who are we learning from? What are we doing? Where are we going? How's it going down? He's just on a roll. I'll just sit back over here, put, kick my feet up, let you take over. Listen, I'm about ready for spring break because in one week we are going on spring break. Thank you, Jesus. All right. So Which today, is, wait, wait, it's a great, <gasps> you didn't even follow where oh, I was taking us. I was right. taking us on a journey. I was going, we were going. So today me. we are interviewing our spring break family. Our spring break family. Family. We've done this. Family. Four years-ish. Yeah, it's been many years. I feel that like every, we year, have, every year they add a child. They do. Um, so we've been spring breaking. Is that what you say? Oh, I don't know. Gosh. We've been doing it together for a while. And this is Jonathan and Callie Rich. And uh, Jonathan and Callie both work for J. Rich Atlanta. Spring break. <laughs> <laughs> You're still laughing. That was good, right? Um, it wasn't good. Uh, you can follow him at J. Rich Atlanta on Instagram. Well, both of them and their whole team. Um, yes. They went from flipping one house, the flip that flopped, he called it to now being one of the top real estate teams in Atlanta. Yes. So uh, what are we going to be listening for? Well, Jonathan and Kelly are great friends of ours, so we did get to go deep on some topics, some topics like adoption Mm -hmm. and um, transracial um, families. And uh, But anyway, thinking about what we should be listening for on this podcast... um, Number one, there's this great quote that Jonathan said, everyone should be involved in adoption, but not everyone is equipped to adopt. And uh, I thought that was a great, like, I don't know, it was a great segue to a lot of the conversation that we're going to have together. Yeah, we definitely talked a lot about adoption. So this is for you if you're thinking about it or interested in it. Or if you have questions. Questions, yeah. they They are full, full, full of knowledge. So next one. Number two, 
they are on a journey as a family. They want to take all their kids to all 50 states, and we unpack how they pack and how they sleep and all the things. How they do it. And lastly, they use this term, the gas and the brakes. And I think this is a really cool term related to being married to someone that's a visionary and how to maybe um, not say no, but interact with them in a healthy way to think through things fully. That's great. So here we go. This is Jonathan and Callie Rich. Uh, We met working at a day camp together. So we met. I really liked him. He did not really like me. Hold on. There's a story behind the story here. So the day camp was at the church that I grew up at. And you had to be 18 to work there. They hired college, like college kids. And then each class had like a school teacher from that was doing work in the summer. So Callie finds out about it from this guy that went to our church who had showed up at her house to dinner randomly one night because she had invited a friend from her school whose mom had cancer and was, and was in Texas getting treatment. And she was just trying to be nice and invited her friend over for dinner because their parents were out of town. And, and she was like, you can invite a friend if you want, like just to make it not awkward. So he invites this guy who's from my church and then the kid cancels the dinner, but the guy from my church shows up. So Callie has this super awkward dinner at her house with this kid who essentially ends up getting her the job at our day camp. And no one knew she was 16 until she had been working there two weeks. She put sophomore in the application. They thought she meant sophomore in high school when they interviewed you mean her. in college? Yeah, yeah. In, in college. Yeah. And then That's she, crazy. by the time they figured so it out. So you would have guessed she was 18. You were I'm, thinking the whole time she was 18? I mean, you could say that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, <laughs> but it's crazy because she wouldn't have ever worked there. Like right. that scenario, we would have right. never really met because I would have been gone by the time she was in college if that kind of random kid didn't show up for dinner but brought his friend and then somehow she got the job and For clarity, else. we did not date that oh, year. Yeah. Right. No, we stayed friends we read, for... I kissed dating goodbye and did some oh, courting. Stop it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That is not even <laughs> true. You, were, you got to know each other the, that first year. We did. Uh, we stayed friends. We liked a lot of the same bands. We'd go to concerts together, but always with other people. And then the next summer, we worked together again. I finished high school early and... I think the end of that summer, we kind of realized there's something here. This is something. Yeah. And then how long? And then when did you get married? I mean, really, a year after that. So, but it, it was kind of like when we started two dating years or whatever you could call it, because it was a very slow process with the age gap. And um, I had had a relationship that uh, like ended a little roughly, and so I was very cautious to get into another one. And um, and so it was slow. By the time we kind of started dating and figured out we liked each other, it, I mean, shortly after that, we realized uh, we're probably getting married. So uh, I was 24 and she was 19 when we got married. It made a lot of sense for us. I think it sounds insane now. Really? Okay, that's what I was going to say because yeah. we talk about this a lot about the positives and negatives of like new, young, young married. What do you think are some of those positives and negatives since you actually experienced them? I thought I knew a lot more than I did at 19. And I think I was a really mature 19-year-old, but it's insane when I think about it, when I see 19-year-olds now. And there's a lot that we 
didn't have right about the world at that time. And I'm really glad that we had the most important thing, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, think, yeah, like your brain's not even fully developed yet. It's crazy. It's crazy. But I will say Callie decisions. was, I mean, it, indicative of like her getting the job at day camp and like Callie was beyond her years, um, mm-hmm. mature, mature wise, but still, even if we were both 24, I mean, that's super young. Yeah. Um, very young. I think, you know, advantage wise, if you talk about advantages and disadvantages, like you haven't figured out who you are yet. So there's no deconstructing to do. Mm. So I think in that way, it's like we got to grow in a lot of the ways that we've grown over the past, you know, 13, 14, 15 years together. And we've been able to work through things together and sharpen each other through that process. Um, So, I mean, that's an advantage. Another advantage could be that you know, if you have children earlier on, then you become empty nesters earlier on. However, <laughs> you for us, that. we just you kept just having keep having kids. kids. And that kind of, only works if you quit having kids. <laughs> we voided that advantage somewhere along the way. Okay, and so share how, how many kids do you have? We have six kids. Six kids. What ages? Six kids. They are eleven, eight, five, four, two, and five months. Oh my goodness! You're and, gonna you're gonna be raising wait, kids we, forever. Before everybody. How many are biological and how many are adopted? We have two biological kids and four adopted kids. Yeah, so I love, well, first of all, I love your story of adoption. So share how you, that became a passion for you. So, I mean, if you, where that came from, how that developed, began, were you on the same page right from the beginning? No, well, yes, I think early on, even when we were dating, courting Josh Harris, uh, <laughs> early on, I think we had discussions about like adoption is something that we would both be open to. And then um, Callie worked at um, Grady Hospital here in Atlanta, um, which is in kind of like the public um, underserved population as a labor and delivery nurse. We lived in Eastlake, which was uh, a neighborhood that was um, at the time, um, there was a lot of poverty in the neighborhood. And we just saw like the need for like kids who needed parents a lot of times. And so we, we talked about that early on, but when we actually stepped into the adoption process, it was not like we were, we we're not together. What happened was I had an autoimmune um, disorder that almost crippled me early on in our marriage. And when Josiah, our first, was born, uh, I couldn't even stand up. Like uh, I had huge swelling in my knees and my hip. And literally, he was, I have memories of him being two months old. I'm sitting in a rocker holding him. And I would need to stand up and I would have to hand him off to someone so I could push myself up because hmm. I was so sick. And so I had a lot of emotional, like almost PTSD from that, like my first experiences in hmm. fatherhood. And she was ready, you know, two years later to have our second and I wasn't. Hmm. And so it wasn't like crazy conflict, but we were just working through that. And uh, she went to this conference out in Waco, Texas with a friend of hers and she felt like at that conference in this place the lord was like maybe you should think about adoption now Hmm. and she came back this is kind of how our marriage goes like she came back and she was like hey like the lord told me that we should maybe adopt right now and i was like okay like so i wasn't ready for it or or any or thinking about it but at that time for me adoption felt like less of a commitment than getting pregnant did Hmm. which is a naive way of getting into it Hmm. but that kind of that just pried the door open for us to step in and start to investigate it. And once we did that, like once I stepped through that door, it was like, oh yeah, this is what we're supposed to be doing. So now you guys, I mean, so many people come to you because you've adopted multiple children um, looking for advice. And I think there's probably a lot of listeners that are 
pondering about it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe one maybe one partner is all in right now and they're trying to convince their other partner. Or maybe one is excited about it, one's scared. Or maybe they're both scared and trying to figure out what to do. What so when you sit down, I mean you got, I know you've sit down with multiple families. Um, what are some basic, you know, pieces of advice that you give people that are pondering this, this question? I'll start by saying, um, we firmly believe that everyone should be involved in adoption. However, not everyone is equipped to adopt. And, and so what tell, I, yeah, tell us so, so what I mean that. by that is if you, if you care about anyone on this planet besides yourself, there's such a deep need, um, for children to have families nationally in your neighborhood, in your city. Obviously, internationally, there are so many kids that, that need homes that they can have the opportunity to become well-adjusted adults in and be loved and cared for. Um, and so with the need, like you should, you should be participating in some way in that process, and whether it's um, participating financially and helping another family that's adopting adopt or um, just providing support, like caring for a, a family who has adopted and providing childcare, providing meals or praying for them or whatever. Just if, if I think everyone should be involved in the process of adoption, but um, being equipped to actually bring a child into your home is a, it's a heavy responsibility. It's a, it's a, it's a different kind of journey. Um, and, and I don't know that everyone is, is equipped and, and prepared and, and has the capacity to, to do that. That being said, we're huge advocates of adoption. 100%. It's the best journey that we've been on in our lives. And I think we hear consistently the same fears coming out of a lot of people. Like you asked about, will I love my child the same as a biological child? And we're a testament to absolutely, yes, you do. I think a lot of people also have the fear. There's fears that go along with adoption. There's just like this ridiculous thing that's like... That someday... Uh, that it's someday this child's going to be taken from them. The birth... Don't, have you guys gotten that question a lot? Yeah. We do get that question. Um, and that goes a lot into openness of adoption. People are scared of openness. And we have two different birth families in our family. One, we have no contact with and the other one we're in a very open relationship with. And I always tell people we want to enter into those relationships with our children now because we have a relationship with their birth family. And then when they're older, they don't have to choose one family or the other. They don't have to feel like they're duplicit if they're spending time or want to get to know their birth families because we're in those relationships with them. In this day and age with social media, children are going to find their, yeah, yeah, and they're going to find their siblings and we want their siblings to feel welcome in our home. We want them to feel a part of our family so that the scarier thing would be if they grew up and felt like in some way it compromised their allegiance to our family by being in relationship with another. Plus all of the, all of the best kind of like psychological studies and research that's been done the past couple of decades all state that it's better for everyone. It's better for the birth family. It's better for the adopted parents and it's better for the adopted children if there is some sort of connection. And that can look different for everybody. Every situation is going to have its own dynamic and unique distinctive issues. Mm. Um, but, but being willing to be open and, and 
kind of distinguishing that fear of like, oh man, when they get older, I'm going to lose them or they're going to choose someone else. Like, I think, I think it's important to kind of work through that early on if you're going to step into the process. And now your kids are all, um, it's transracial adoptions, right? So talk to us a little bit about how you have, like, what are some things that you've realized are really important in that context with having a multiracial family? I think it's really important if you're going to adopt transracially, you have to understand that you're choosing to adopt your child. Your child's not choosing to be adopted outside of their race. And you, it is your obligation as the parent, once you've made that decision, to make sure you're cult- culturally competent in your um, the culture your child's coming from or the race your child's coming from and to give them every opportunity to have that experience. And so it is, it's a big commitment and a big undertaking as a parent to realize I can't be everything my child needs in their racial identity or their cultural identity. I'm going to have to tap on the shoulders of friends and colleagues to help me in raising my child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also, I mean, you guys have done this well, so I'm not just saying from, I'm saying from experience with you all, but um, I feel like you've also made very important decisions in how you live your life to also integrate that. So, I mean, schools, your kids yeah. go to, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's, um, it feels when I'm, say something with absolutes, it always feels a little bit like harsh, but I really do feel like it's, it's mandatory. If you're going to become a transracial family and you're going to adopt a child into your family, especially if you're, a, if you're Caucasian, if you're a majority family and you're bringing a minority mm-hmm. into your home that you have to think through, you have to kind of, your entire family has to open their hands up to the reality that you're going to have to lean into their culture more yes. than your culture. Yeah. And for a majority Coming from a majority perspective, that's that's not easy to do. So you have to think about everything you're doing from where your kid goes to school to who their doctor is to what church you go to yeah. um, to what friends you have, not what friends they have, but what friends you have mm-hmm. so that you can make sure that when your child grows up and they're 18 years old and they go to college, you know, for us, we have, um, we have four African-American children. Um, three of them also um, are, have, uh, their mom's from the Dominican Republic, so there's a Hispanic context there. Mm-hmm. Like for my kids, when they go to college, they're not going to be known as Callie and Jonathan's kid. They're going to be known as a as a black female or a black male, and they need to be able to be confident in their identity yeah. in that way. Um, and so, so some practical things that we've worked through is like uh, where we live and where we go to school and where we go to church. Those are those are like big non negotiables for us. Yeah. Those have to be diverse communities and we've been very fortunate that we landed here in a neighborhood in Atlanta where there's a lot of that and there's also a lot of transracial families that are that's very helpful so that's a thing I think um, for us in our personal experience there's things about like African-American culture it's like you have to get these things right for your children and so we've dug into what those things are and we've you know, been very intentional about doing that. And if that means that my two biological children who are not African-American have to lean into it as well, like that's what we're doing because that's who our family is now. And I think what Callie said is really important. We always tell all of the families that we get to share and counsel with, like if you're going to adopt transracially, you have to understand that you're choosing to become a transracial family, but the child is not choosing to be a part of a majority white family. Right, yeah. 
I mean, I'm just thinking about maybe somebody listening who lives in Podunk, Indiana, and it's very white yeah. culture. This is where that like has, absolute that I said gets really. I know, bred. and you know, the intention in the heart is very pure, right? Mm-hmm. I want to see these kids have a family that's loved and that somebody's taking care of them. How? What are maybe? They can't move or you know change their whole life. But what are some little things that you think would be helpful? What do you what do you see as some you know things that could help in those situations? There's a lot of extra work to be done. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it depends on what the culture of your child is, uh, the specifics of what needs to be done. But I would say you have to do extra work to make sure. If you can't surround yourself with other adults from that culture, it's much more difficult to be able to identify what parts of the cultural experience are missing for my child. Mm-hmm. So with online access, uh, the ability to educate yourself has increased, but I think you have to really lean in. This is the biggest struggle for international adoption, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So it's China. 100%. Good Lord, that's yeah. like a tw- friggin' 24-hour yeah. trip, you know? So I think that there are, yeah, it's a real issue. I'm not just talking about a small segment of the population. So, but I think that there are things, right? Yeah, but I I would say in most, uh, for most, if we we looked at international adoption, um, for most kind of transracial cultural um, adoptions, if you live in an urban context, especially a larger urban context, there are opportunities there. Yes, ur- so, you're right. That's yeah. right. So I think but the you, question, but it really comes down to more But I think you have like, to search it because if my kid's from Malawi, 100%. then 100%. I got to somehow find a Malawi community. Right. Well, even, in, know, so in that context, even, yeah, where you're adopting from right. can dictate how much work it is. Exactly. The, the first couple of questions I would ask are, how much are you really willing to sacrifice? That'd yeah. be my first question yeah. to a family like that. And then my second question would be, is this really about them or is it about you? Hmm. Because. Kind of like the white savior complex, yes, right? 100%. Yeah. Because, or even, or maybe not, maybe just like, I want to be a parent. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like I, 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 I wasn't able I'm, to have and biological yeah, and I, children. And I'm open yeah. to it. And so I'm willing to do whatever. Yes. And, yes. and I just think those questions need to be answered in a very serious hmm. um, and a very discerning way. Yeah. Before you step into what is the actual work that we're going to do? Like like what are you willing to do with the two weeks that you have off every yeah. year? Yeah. Yeah. What are you willing you how far are you willing to, to drive? Malawi. How far are you willing to drive on <laughs> Sunday morning and how uncomfortable are you willing to be if that's something if church yeah. is a thing for you? Yeah, yeah. Right. And even then I feel like it's still incredibly hard like if if I, I don't know if this is what you're asking but I think about um I went to college in Cleveland, Georgia. It's literally called White County. Oh, wow. And there is no diversity in that county. And mm. it's like if my children were in that school, it would be impossible for them. It, no matter yeah. how much hard work I did, yeah. no matter how many resources online there were, yeah. if the day-to-day experience for them and all of their relationships are built in a majority culture, like you could give them some resources and hope for the best, but it's not going to be the best mm. for them. Yeah. I think a really good exercise for any parent that's looking to adopt transracially that's a a majority parent, a Caucasian parent, is to go into a setting in which you are other. So if that is going to a mall where you're the only 
white person or going to a church where you're the only white person. A church is a really good example, in my opinion, because what a lot of people will find is everyone's loving and welcoming, but there's a level of uncomfortable of, I don't know, am I doing the right thing? Are people saying hello to me because they're friendly or they saying hello to me because it's obvious that I'm an outsider. Mm-hmm. And having that kind of experience as a white person is really valuable when you consider the perspective of a child adopted transracially into white the lens culture. in which they experience mm-hmm. white culture. So a school that's all white children and one child of color, everyone may be loving and welcoming to the child, but it doesn't change the perspective of the child who's always second guessing their experience. Their experience. Yeah, and their identity. I want to hear a little bit of story. So you guys n- now, and we talked about this in the introduction, talked about kind of the business you guys have built together over the, I don't know how many years it's been now, probably 10, 11 years. Eight years. Last eight years. Yeah, eight years. But when you started, it was not what it is today. Nada. <laughs> is that Nada. <laughs> That's true. Nada. Yeah. That's true. And so I'm curious, like when you began, you started this real estate company and... um and just flipping homes, really. You started yeah. by flipping a home, and it didn't work. Yeah. Talk about those first couple of years of what you learned, not about business, but in marriage when the money was not yeah. coming in. So if, if we're going to talk about finances, it's important to just note one thing that's been incredibly instrumental in our marriage. Um, both of us, to no credit of our own, had parents who set us up in a way that in our adult life we would be debt-free. We entered into marriage debt-free. No car Which pay- is rare. Yeah, Which is rare. super rare. Super rare. Super rare. Okay. Um, and, and again, it wasn't, we didn't do that. Like Maybe we, it's because we started at 19. Well, that's part of it. We didn't have a chance to get credit cards yet. <laughs> you didn't? We, we, you couldn't get a credit right. card yet. <laughs> she hadn't done college and there were no credit cards. And so we, But seriously, I always tell this story like my mom gave me a credit card when I was 18 had a $500 limit on it. She's like, I'm going to help you build your credit and I'm going to pay for your gas while you're in college. So um, every month I'll pay $200 of this credit card. And she said, she was like, the first month that there's anything above $200 that rolls over, you will no longer have this credit card. And it was like, that's all she had to do to like teach me mm-hmm. just one little piece of financial advice that then bled into all these other ways. Anyways, so, so we had this major advantage that when we started, not only were we debt-free, but we both valued I don't know if it's a sense of pride or what, but we valued like... Like keeping it that way, Yes, like living below your means and not spending money you don't have. And so we had all these things in place to where we were as poor as you can be, we were our first two years of marriage and we gave money away and we're fine, you know? So Mm -hmm. um, even saved a little bit of money. So we get into this this first renovation and uh, we, I had this idea, I had a buddy who had a friend who was flipping houses in Eastlake here in Atlanta um, and he was like, man, we should totally do this. My buddy will help us and it'll be great. And I'm 26 and I'm interested in learning about construction. And I saw flip that house on television. I thought, <laughs> it, was, I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. And so, and Callie just like, Callie's really good at, you know, I'm the gas and she's the brakes in our relationship, but she's also really good at like giving me some leeway when I have ideas and letting me run with stuff. And probably we were too young to know any better at this point. So I get into this renovation in uh, June of 2007, and the market is literally just Thank falling you. out Thank of the you. sky. <laughs> and I remember actually my aunt saying to me, like, hey, the, like, the real estate market isn't doing so great. This is before we bought it, right? I'm like about to buy this flip. And I'm like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> it's good. It's kind of I'm like 26. I've never Again, owned a house before. brain not yes. fully developed. <laughs> yeah. 
So long story made short, we get into this house. We don't know what we're doing. My buddy's friend doesn't help us at all. Um, it was a huge learning curve for me. We get to the end of it. It's March of 2008 now. And we feel like we've got a shot. Like, fortunately, the, the renovation itself went okay. It wasn't awesome, but it, it, it wasn't a complete disaster. And, and we feel like we've got a shot and we put it on the market and it doesn't sell and it doesn't sell. And we're dropping the price and it doesn't sell and it doesn't sell. And come June, the lender who we had a private lender and all the private lenders were going crazy because they were losing all their loans. They literally put a guy on me that called me every day and was like, you got to get out of this loan. Have you sold yet? Have you sold yet? Are you going to refinance? And the whole thing kind of fell apart. And uh, the only option was for me to buy my partner out. He had $5,000 on a credit card. And fortunately for us, we were in a position where we could move into it as our primary residence. And okay. so we were renting an apartment. And so the only way to not lose the house was, was to for us pay to pay the mortgage yes, yourself to move your into it. Yeah. And, and it was crazy because we had uh, every single dollar of cash that we had at the time, which wasn't much, was in that house. And then I had borrowed $30,000 from my parents and that was in the house. So it was this huge, I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing. We went through this whole process and then I literally, we call it the flip that flopped. It's like this, it's, it's the largest physical, tangible uh, failure of my life. And I move my wife and my six-month-old into it. I'm like living inside of it. So living you're, inside yeah. of your failure. That's so yeah. That is very interesting. So you're just yeah. feeling it every day. Well, I just remember too, like all my other friends were buying their first house and it was like this super exciting thing. And it was cool and fun. It was, yeah, it's like and, your first house, like sexy, yeah. like awesome, whatever. And for us, it was like, no, nah, this is... This is it. Like, yeah, this is like, I'm literally looking at this thing like, man, I, I messed up. So. so how did that affect... Marriage. Yeah, like, are you mad about this? You. No, I don't. I was never mad. I think we just which is said, why we're still married. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just said, oh well, we're gonna make the best of it. But we didn't paint the walls because we were gonna move out six months later. We thought when the market turned around. What did that teach you about what matters to the two of you? Oh man, I mean, I think this has been a thread. Like that was a moment for sure. There's been other moments. I don't know how much we'll talk about kind of the trajectory of um, our our business, but I think it established kind of this foundational thread for us that as long as we're together and as long as everyone's healthy, we're good. Nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's this other thing a couple years into He wasn't even healthy. Yeah. I was was really sick. (laughs) And you had the audio. Um, There was another uh, uh, thing that happened my second year as an agent. So fast forward to 2011, um, we had flipped a house and then I was helping this lady as her buyer's agent and I sold her the house. So I was the owner, the seller's agent and the buyer's agent. It was a huge mistake to do that, but I didn't think about it. I was young and new and mm-hmm. thought, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm highly relational and highly trusting. And so I was just like, oh, it's fine. Well, a year later, her basement flooded and it wasn't anything to do with the work we did. We hadn't done anything in the, in the crawl space basement, but I'm on the hook because... You sold the like, house. Right. And the way that it looks. Like yeah. I was the owner and I told you who the inspector should be and yeah. else. And there was about a four month period where we were trying to figure out what was gonna happen with that. And I literally was just non respondent. Like we had family come in town and I was just, I was always thinking about it, so I couldn't think or give to anything else. Just fear of what's shut gonna down. happen. Like shut down. That's right. Almost. And Callie pulled me into the kitchen one day and she was like, She's like, What's your problem? Like you're not engaging on anything. What what is going on? And she knew about what was happening. And I was like, well, the you know this thing and you know whatever. And are we are we going to get sued? And how's it going to work out? And how much it's going to cost? And she's like, 
What's the worst thing that could happen? And I had built, like the business had built a little bit at this point, nothing like what it is now, but we had built a little something. And she was like, we get sued and lose everything. So what? Hmm. And that was like a, that was like a pillar moment for me in, in my business, but also like just reinforcing this thing that had happened three or four years earlier about our family where it's like, here's the metric and here are the intangibles. Is everybody healthy? Are we together? We're good. We can make it. So. I still would like no one to sue us, but. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we didn't get sued. So that was, that worked out well yet. So, yeah. so Jonathan is definitely more of the risk taker in the family. So if you were giving, a, if you were sitting with someone and their partner was the risk taker and you were giving them advice, what would you say to I them? I can't wait for this. I know. We want to hear from Callie. I always Jonathan's like, do it, just do it. Yeah, everybody, everybody, it's all gonna work out. Everybody's gonna, gonna be fine. Oh, trust me, we would be bankrupt five times months. by now if it's I was not months. married to Callie Ray. The, 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 it's all turnaround yeah. in six months. Right? It's all turnaround. <laughs> you know, Jonathan talked about this analogy I use, which is you have to have a gas pedal and a brake pedal to drive the car safely. And so I think that there have been times. I mean, there were times that Jonathan's wanted to do things, and I knew hard and fast no and he didn't like hearing that but I try I mean we really have a relationship built on trust he's really built a lot of expertise with the house flipping things especially the early days of house flipping I would say just show me the numbers I need to see things on paper because he's such a visionary that Sometimes the numbers get underestimated or... Tweaked in his favor a little bit. <laughs> I, I learned to build in a little Skewed buffer there. It's called manipulative <laughs> math, people. It's funny, though. I, so as a... It's obviously close friends of you guys. What's funny is I've seen both of you guys have visions that you're like, we are going in this way. And you both are like, I don't know. I don't know. It's true, but... but you support each other and slow each other down at different times. His are always houses and mine are always babies. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to say that. I don't know how much I slow her down on that. But yeah. <laughs> I'm you. more effective at the slowing down, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but I do yeah. think you do a really good job, Callie, of being like, okay, my husband's a visionary. He has great ideas. Some of them have worked. Some of them have not. And, and trying to, like not saying no, but kind of trying to like slow it down process through it, what's the right decision for our family, right? Yeah, I think I try and offer him balance because, and you guys are very familiar with this, we've really pushed to go deep, not wide with our business. And we have several different business entities. And at some point during the process of building it, us mutually saying what would be most beneficial now is to go deep in these things we've decided that we've built expertise in rather than trying to explore these other endeavors. So there are, there's a good list of things on pause at any good, given moment that he would like to pursue. But show me the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's not even just about financial numbers at this point. It's also about capacity, how do we, right? capacity and yeah. time. Like what do we have to say no to time-wise yeah. because of the drag on that? We have kind of paused flipping houses on the side, which has always been on the side of the real estate business, not because of finances, but because of 
the time co- and capacity requirements on that. So yeah. what do we have to start saying no to to build in that? And then, uh, I mean, I guess along in that is you have six kids. Yeah. So there's... It's a few, t- it's a few full-time jobs. So many... Um, needs and so many um things going on like so you know you say no like with business stuff like how have you adopted that or figured that out with family stuff are you asking like how do we do the business and family both well yeah and how do you say no to the things too that you need to say you know it's like you kind of figure out how to say no you figure it out with business right how to narrow how to go deeper then six kids yeah. How are you gonna do? How do you do that yeah. with kids? Well, we have who few, all have very few needs. friends at this point because <laughs> no one wants us to come over to their house. Right. Yeah. So that just was natural selection. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We didn't have to say no. People stopped yeah. asking. Oh, no. <laughs> so I think a couple of th- couple of things. One, um, there was a period where the business was having to be built. Mm-hmm. And and we had, I mean, we had kids. We had we didn't have six, but we had, you know, just mm-hmm. we had two or three. And there was a recognition that like, hey, we're we're building this right now and it's really difficult. I mean, there's a period of time before I started to hire people that I was working 90, 100 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And we knew that was not sustainable mm-hmm. for our family. Um, but we we kind of had like an end in mind. It's like if we don't get to here by X and I can start saying no and I can start yeah. choosing the things I know are important for our family, then we're just going to say no to all of it. So there was literally a fork in the road for us when I started Jerish Atlanta, which is our team now. We have now we have ten people. The first hire I made, the decision was: Am I going to hire and scale, and then get to a place where we can really have more influence in our business, or am I going to say no to forty percent, forty five percent of what I'm currently doing? That was like the ninety hour a week period. So it was like you had to have a. You said it was a season, mm-hmm. and you had to have a beginning and an end. That's right. And, and if egg- it didn't meet a goal at that end yeah. time, and, and we didn't have it was like, like a, a reconfiguration of what you were. That's right. Do. We didn't have an exact date, but we right. had a very clear idea in mind of when that end of that season was. Yeah, and it was a non-negotiable. Yeah. Like I'm either going to hire people and grow it this way, or I'm going to say no and I'm going to cut my workload in half. And both are legitimate options. We're going to figure that out when we get there. And you were so. just you were okay with those crazy hours because in your mind you knew this was like a season or like what made that okay? Cause that's a lot of him not being there. It was intense. I think we were always in it together. We always felt like our relationship was connected and that's what made the hours sustainable. Hmm. We didn't feel disconnected in that time, but when he's working, I'm working. So if he's working all weekend, I have the kids all weekend and the more kids that we've had, the less mobile that makes me. And so I think we've, the battle became if I feel trapped because if he's out all the time, then I'm parenting solo. And the other thing that I think is important about our particular situation is our business, we've built a geocentric business and uh, everything is within four or five miles of, of our house that Mm. I work on for the most part. And so what, what that's allowed is even though I may be working, I mean, I don't need more, but I may be work, I may have been working 90 hours a week, but I was at every parent teacher conference. I was at every baseball game because I was so local. I was still present. So it doesn't remove what Callie's talking about, this huge burden of like, if I'm at an open house on Sunday, like 
she's at home with the kids. Right. And I'm very cognizant. At least you're not in that. another city. That's right. And so saying. I would, yeah, yeah, and I would, I would in say if I had, if I had right. had to build this business in 90 hours a week and I was traveling three, four days a week, it would not have worked. Yeah. Progressing forward, I mean, we, in this podcast, we talk a lot about like, um, you know, is it possible to change the world? We'll ask you that question in a second. Uh, as the business has grown, you guys have had a really cool opportunity to reinvest in a bunch of really cool projects, things like adoption. Can you guys share about how the, how you've kind of, um, kind of in some ways flipped the real estate world on its head with a couple major decisions you made? Callie and I have always, from going back to the beginning and how our parents kind of like gave us this gift of understanding finances early on, uh, we value generosity. That's been a huge um, thread for our relationship and our family from before we got married. Um, and so I would say privately for us, we were always looking for opportunities to be generous. And going even back to that first year of marriage, we have these crazy stories. I remember our budget allowed us to give away $400 a month. And there was like four different months that what we chose to give away to like met an exact need. So it's like, so like even in our first year, I think I made 18 grand that year and she didn't make anything because she was in school. We, we saw like this generosity thing playing out in our lives in a really exciting way. So as we got into real estate and the business started to grow, we realized that we really wanted to be doing something that not only allowed us to practice generosity, but maybe would be an invitation to our clients to also be able to participate in generosity. And so we started um, effectively as a foundation, but kind of an organizational side of our business called Brilliant. Um, and we take 10% of our, of our overall revenue and we put it into kind of a, a nonprofit bucket that then distributes it to partners that we feel like are doing really good work around the city and the world. Um, and so uh, we've worked with a bunch of different partners. Some of our um, kind of like really close-knit ones, we worked with Charity Water every year. Charity Water is somebody that I've worked with since um, a long time, back when I was playing music and traveling around. And um, we've been able to, I think this coming year, we'll have our little real estate business of you know four agents will have provided clean water for over 2,000 people. Wow. So, That's and then we're inviting our clients into that process. So it's like, hey, because you worked with us, because you allowed, you trusted us with the great responsibility of helping you become a homeowner or sell your home, you also participated in providing 100 people with clean water or whatever it was. So, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, it's been rad. All right, I got another question for you. Yes. This is a very practical question for Callie, and it relates to a vision that you have for your family. The vision is you want to take all your kids to all 50 states. Yes. Because so share this, like, how, first of all, how do you pack? How, how do, do you travel? It? How do you travel with a big family and how are you making this all happen? We were in a season when we had other friends that were buying second homes with the intention of creating a space for their children to create shared memories. And because of Jonathan working on weekends and our lifestyle, that idea... We liked the idea of creating common memories for our children, but we needed to do it in a different way. And Jonathan and I love to travel. So we said, what, con what goal can we set to achieve together as a family? And we decided, let's see all 50 states. So we started that and... We've kept having children, but since <laughs> you have to reset every two years, yeah, you it's gotta like, like oh, you got to keep track per person. Add Illinois to the list again. Add Texas back. Jude didn't Asher, go here. Asher didn't it. get to California. <laughs> after the first four, we were like, okay, anyone that comes after this just has to get the those first states and on the back end. We've done twenty three states oh, wow. in I suppose about four years because. Mm -hmm. She's four now. And there is strategy, 
we have, let's see, a couple years ago, we did the Great Lakes States because we could get air flight for less than $90 round trip. So we said, well, we're going there. So part of it is like you're searching, okay, where can I get a deal for this? If we're flying, yeah. So Southeast, right, for yeah. us, we're in Atlanta. Southeast, you can pretty much get to. We just drove out to Texas and back. So, But if we're flying, Northeast, certainly West Coast, it's like, where are the cheapest tickets and when that yeah. dictates. And then we plan a trip off of that. Yeah. yeah. And you try to hit numerous states on one trip. If you can't hit at least three. Yeah. It's, it's not, not worth it's it. It's not worth the trip. <laughs> I will tell you right now. We, uh, yes. Let's Alaska. see. We did Great Lakes, I mean, four states. We Alaska, did. Alaska and Hawaii. We're taking donations now <laughs> for like whenever that goes down. Anybody of you listening to this podcast. I remember we were trying to play a trip with them. I'm like, how many, you guys have to have a lot of miles from different stuff. And, he, and Kyle was like, we are saving those miles for Hawaii. Someday use them. <laughs> we actually just used all the miles for our summer vacation, so we're gonna have to start over. I finally gave in. They, you all stay in one hotel room. Yeah, this is the part. How that's crazy. does this happen? Don't tell the hotels that we're <laughs> staying in. You're gonna be on the blacklist. So our current family situation allows us to get queen suites, which is two queen beds and one pull-out sofa. So there will be usually. Three girls and the queen, because they're all still small. The two boys on the pull-out sofa, and then the baby in a pack and play. So, in other words, like intimacy isn't really the focus of those trips. <laughs> <laughs> Our children might hear this one day, Jeff. Y'all, every time. Okay, and then you are like master full up the packing. Packing. I make rows for each child. And we pack based on destination. So a lot of our trips are road trips or we fly somewhere and then road trip out of there. So we pack all the bags based on where we're staying that night versus per person. So we can take in as little luggage as possible. Yeah, because you leave then a bunch of it in the car. That's right. right. Go into the hotel for that night. You only have that one. Because you're on the go. To hit the multiple states, you have to be. Yeah, we did. Our our favorite trip so far was New England. And we did eight states. Is that right? Did we do eight in that trip? Six states. Okay, out of Boston, six states in eight days. And it was a different hotel every night. And it's like a lot of times we're pulling into the hotel at like 8, 8.30. And we're leaving the next morning at 7.30. Right, so you want the minimal. That's right. That was the masterful trip because we flew Spirit and packed in all book bags. Listen. Ninja. She's a ninja. Yeah, I did know. Did you do like the, were you doing the uh, vacuum packed or something or did you just? No, no. We packed each book bag for each night for children, but we take each outfit and roll it up together. So it's one entire outfit for a child. So it's real easy to grab out of the suitcase. You guys, everybody look up Callie Rich and come to her for all All the packing knowledge. You have to pack. As like light as throwing possible. Throwing things in suitcases. Like, we pray yeah. this works. You have to pack as light as possible because there's so many people. You got married when you're 19. What do you wish you would have known then that you know now about marriage? The reason we're still married 14 years later is because we did know this. But first of all, that our friendship undergirds our relationship. Hmm. Uh, and then the second thing is you give 100% of yourself. It's not 50-50. It's you give 100% of yourself, and that enables the your partner to give 100% of themselves. Back to you. Back yeah, to you. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that I think the most important thing that we've learned and experienced, and the reason our marriage has a lot of intensity to it between my 
eight years of illness. Like literally there was a point where she had a three-month-old baby and another baby that was me because I couldn't move. Like from that sickness to building our business to Callie. Callie is the only one that had a lifelong dream occupationally and she had to give it up to be a mother. Um, and in all of those things, I think our marriage has has thrived and flourished because we're not always perfect at it, but we understand like, hey, I'm giving myself completely to you with the anticipation and trust that you will give yourself back to me completely. Which that is the highest hope, right? Like that's like the most yeah. vulnerable like place to be. And that's when it works, you know, but it's, yeah, it's, it's serious. Scary. It's serious. Yeah. yeah. That level of trust is, yeah. is, um, but I think it's also like, like we don't always, we're not always there, but it's like, right. that's the goal. That's the like, goal. Yeah. yeah. So have you been giving yourself 100% to me <laughs> this week? Lord have mercy. <laughs> Y'all, keep my hands away from his neck. (laughs) (laughs) All right, last question. Is it possible to change the world, stay in love, and raise a healthy family? This has been a great debate in our family, so I appreciate you guys asking this question. What I have concluded myself is if changing the world is your job, or your profession, then I think no. Uh, But if changing the world and your passions extends beyond what you do uh, in your profession, then I do think it's possible. I I spent 18 months after I left my professional career grieving it and having to separate who I was from what I did. And in that time when I felt like my brain was rotting, doing laundry and mindless tasks, (laughs) learning the sacredness, what I call the sacredness of the mundane. uh, What I ended up finding is that I had passions that were bigger than what I was doing just in my job. My job was a small expression of larger passions I had. And so when I realized that what I was doing at work played into these other things I'm passionate about, racial reconciliation, adoption, helping people through pregnancy and birth, and transitioning and having healthy families, then I realized that I could still live in those passions in different and creative outlets outside of my profession for this season while I'm home with children. So I think it depends on how you define how you... What that contribution is. Right. Mm -hmm. How about you, Jonathan? It's good. So, I mean, you guys are, you know, great friends of ours. We've been talking about this question for a long time. We really appreciate you guys asking it. Um, Cal and I have a little bit of a different opinion on this, but the first thing I would say is um, I believe that if you are raising well-adjusted children who will, will eventually have good discernment and who love each other and love you and you love each other well, I think that is changing the world. Beyond that, if, if we're going to talk a little bit more about like, well, cha- if changing the world in the context of the question means something else like occupation or impact or influence outside of your family, um, then I think it really comes down, it's like an identity issue where it's like you're, you're really talking about the, the, the idea of changing the world becomes a, a thing where it's like, well, is that really, whatever that is, whatever that looks like for you in the business that you have or the nonprofit you're leading or... Um, the music you created or, or whatever it is, um, if that's completely and totally who you are, then no. 
then no, I don't think you can do it all. But if that is just, if that's a, if who you are is something much more than that, and that's just, you know, something that you're doing, I think actually maybe Jeff Foxworthy said that or something. It's like, mm-hmm. it's what I do. It's not who I am. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, totally. So I say yes and no. I've, I'm sure that helps you guys out a ton. But, <laughs> you both I'll said say, yes and no. <laughs> well, I, the other thing I would like to say is maybe, <laughs> is maybe a good answer. <laughs> I did. Uh, I was trying to, trying to explore this because we, we have different perspectives because we clash sometimes because I laid down my professional career five years ago now um, or put it on pause while we have small children. And I told him, I, I really started to think about what is it that I envy when he walks out the door each day to go do something that I perceive he's passionate about. And what I realized is I don't envy that he's working on his passion as much as I do his autonomy. And I think that's, that was a really important deciphering moment for me to realize that when he leaves the home, I feel like he has autonomy over what his agenda is, his schedule, and I don't have that same thing. So that also helps me break down why I feel the way I do in those moments when it seems like, oh, you got to go do this other thing and then just came home and things were handled in the home. Hmm. I feel like we should talk more about that. Tell about the grieving process of letting go of your job, which she was a nurse at Grady, which is where I work. And, um, pretty damn good one. If I do say one of the best for sure. So tell us about that and then kind of, yeah, more about like how you've adjusted through that. I, always knew that I wanted to be a labor and delivery nurse. And I knew I was good at it. I was skilled at it. It was an art. It was a passion. And there were people every day telling me, affirming that for me, how much it made an impact in their life, how much of a difference it made. So transitioning from that to my home where there were un grateful little people who told you they didn't like the dinner you made (laughs) was a big transition because there wasn't any reciprocity in that process. And I also felt like I'm doing something anybody can do. Whereas before I was doing something that was more unique to a more unique skill set. Did you ever try to do both? Like, did you ever, I did. did I for a while, like try to yeah, do both at the same time and see if that would work. And I did. I worked full-time through the first four years of parenthood, and then I transitioned to part-time. And when our third child was one is when I stepped away. And when I did, I said it was just going to be for a year. But we've just kept having kids. <laughs> <laughs> also so interesting. it feels impossible to then go back to it now, right? Or is it, do you still feel it's a pause? Like you would go back to it. That's a good question. I still love helping mothers through birth. I think if and when I go back to it, it will be in a different capacity because with nursing comes sacrifice of holidays. And Mm -hmm. when I put the two side by side, I don't want to give up my holidays with my children now. Yeah. Uh, but I would like to, I like to use my knowledge and my skill set in 
different outlets. So I doula for friends. I would like to do something combining my passions for supporting birth mothers and the birth process, Mm -hmm. um, combining adoption and even advocacy for birth parents in the hospital because so many nurses and uh, staff people are untrained on how best to handle the adoption process in the hospital. So really trying to create content for them on how to handle and how to best support a patient that's making an adoption plan. Yeah. Wait, I want to go back to the question that Andre wanted to stop at for a second. Yeah. How did you grieve? Because that was a term you used. It is, yeah. Uh, The end of that season. Well, I think actually I met you, Jeff, during that season. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good marker of my grief. Jonathan had uh, sent you, it was for Plywood Presents, and you were connecting people, and he told you that I was a homemaker. And you connected me with a house cleaning service, which was a fabulous organization and unintentional on your part. But I got mad at my husband because I said, I am so much more. My passions are so much more than being in the home. And I remember when I met you telling you, hey, just so you know, I have interests outside of the home. And you didn't need that definition. But at the time, I still felt like I had to qualify myself as Mm -hmm. I stay at home, but... These are the other things that I've done or that I'm interested in. And I don't feel that now because who I've identified who I am is separate from these things that I do. Mm -hmm. But it took a lot of unraveling. I didn't realize because I had wanted to do that for so long and I did it so well, if you can say that humbly. You did. You did. There was so much identity. There was so much identity wrapped up in the things that I did well. Which goes back to what I was saying and trying to be is like, I think that in this question, like identity is a huge piece of trying to answer it, you know, understanding what identity is for you and how that's connected to this concept of changing the world and influence and impact. And And I don't still grieve it now, mostly because we have so much else going on. Because you don't have time to (laughs) grieve. But at the point that I chose to leave, Jonathan never asked me to leave my career. I was helping him in the, in the offices of J. Rich Atlanta two days a week and trying to work and trying to keep our house afloat. And it just wasn't working. And so I said, I want to set this down because really having a level of peace in our home was a priority. And it still is making sure that we keep the ball rolling at home smoothly is more important to me than what I'm doing outside of the home in this season. But it doesn't mean that I've given myself up all the way. And going back to what I said about autonomy and really deciphering that autonomy is what I envied that Jonathan had and I didn't is now, I I mean, I always have been, but working out, even though I'm not working in my career, professional career, Working in the offices two days a week gives me that bit of autonomy that really is more what I was craving. And now it's time for the breakdown. (laughs) Yes, it is. What did you enjoy about that conversation? Because... 
I uh, it got a little got a little deep and heated in that You're adoption. You're asking some hard questions. Well, listen, and it's because I'm very passionate about adoption. I think you know it's part of our family, but I'm also very passionate about racial issues and racial reconciliation and a lot of things with that. And um, and I yeah, I think that it's really important that we take away this white savior complex out of this equation with adoption and that we really talk about the real issues and stop just um, going in and thinking that uh, for the white majority that we can, you know, save these kids and do these things. You have to, they really stated about how you have to be proactively thinking about the child and not your own kind of reasons and questions and uh, for doing adoption. So true. I mean, I wrote down many quotes related to their adoption advice. I mean, things like, um, it is your obligation to be culturally competent to your child's race or ethnicity. And I wrote down, it's your responsibility to lean into their culture. And then additionally, they gave a couple of good questions like, um, how much are you willing to sacrifice on behalf of your children? Is it about you or is it about um, your child? And so like, they had a, a series of things kind of going, hitting at, is adoption more for, you, for your identity, or is it more about putting yourself into the history and identity of your child? Yes. And I thought there were some really healthy things to think about. Those are also really hard questions to ponder. It's hard to figure out when you're in the emotion of raising kids who this is for. Right. Yeah, it, it is really hard because I think a lot of people, even in the part, you know, what he was talking about, use adoption uh, or have used adoption just because they can't have their own biological children. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that that's uh, a wrong thing, but you still have to go deeper into your intentions of uh, thinking about the child. I mean, if you are a white parent and you're going to adopt children that are not your race, it is your obligation to shepherd them into same race maturation. Like it is your job to shepherd them into who they will be as that race in their culture. So I'm, That's good. you know, I'm, I'm hot and heavy on this. Folks. That's good. The second I thing could I, go all day. Another thing I wrote down was, um, I loved their story about when they were kind of in a really hard financial season and Jonathan was completely stressed out and I love the vulnerability they shared about that, but that Callie looked at him and said, literally, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. You and I have had, you have had this same exact, you have had the, you said the exact same thing to me. And I will say as a man, it was one of the most humbling moments when you said that to me and one of the most affirming moments that regardless of what I did, that you still love me and we were going to be okay. Yeah, and I I think you can even just take that forward into what they talked about at the end about just this identity thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that if every if your whole identity is wrapped around what you do and that's where you gain all your affirmation and who you are, then yeah, when your business fails, 
you're going down too, you know, and your marriage is going down, everything's going down with it. But if you realize and have your identity and not what you do, but in who you are and who you are in your relationship with your spouse and your kids, then it doesn't matter. I know. It literally doesn't matter. That is way easier to say on a podcast than it is to actually believe in your soul. And I will say this. And it takes years, right? I mean, it's taken years. I I actually think it takes like weekly reminders to yourself. For me, where it's like, because I can get wrapped up in my work extremely fast and it can consume me. But I think that's part of something beautiful about our relationship going, Jeff, come on, relax. We're going to go to dinner. Jeff, let it go. Why are you so stressed about yeah, this? Yeah, like you know? got to pull you out of that headspace. Yeah, right. And that's a, it's a constant tension that I feel, and I have a feeling a lot of other people feel too. I agree. It's it's years and years of work. Yeah, years and years. So thank you, Jonathan and Callie, for joining us today. It's always great to have good friends here. As you guys are listening to this, we're probably swimming in a pool. In Spring break, yo. Puerto Rico. Yeah. So, uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Follow along at Instagram at, at Lover Work, or um, you know what would be great? Subscribe. Subscribe right now, and we will see you again next week. Or actually, you will hear from us next week on the Lover Work podcast. This episode was produced by DJ Obdiggy for Soul Graffiti Productions.